welcome to another episode of the BJJ Tap Podcast. I'm your host, Mose Jones Yellen, and I'm a purple belt training at Team Link in Hooksit, New Hampshire. Team Link. And this is my third episode. The main topic I'm going to be talking about today is something that's critical for anyone who wants to be uh, successful in competition uh, in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, grappling in general. I'm going to be talking about game plans, at least for the first half of the episode. In the second half of the episode, I'm going to tell you all a story about this time I got choked unconscious at a Naga tournament in Rhode Island. Phew. Ah. You know, it's one of those experiences that I'll always remember. You know, it's part of what has shaped me as a grappler. And I think that I'll enjoy sharing that experience with the world, or at least the few people uh, that might have stumbled onto this podcast. Thank you very much, folks. And also, I want to give a shout out to the folks on Reddit uh, the BJJ and the Judo subreddit who listened to my first couple episodes gave me feedback, specifically Dave Roman, who is the voice behind the Judo Chop Suey podcast. Excellent show if you're into this sort of stuff. Um, and he really went out of his way to give me constructive notes. That's exactly the sort of stuff that I need if I'm going to get better at this podcasting thing, which is a reminder in the first two episodes, I know that I said you could contact me at my website, thebjjtap.com, but I haven't actually done anything with that domain. So if you want to reach out to me, you can always email me at thebjjtap at gmail.com. That address does exist. And at some point, maybe I'll get my ish together and put the website up. But in the meantime... This is episode three of the BJJ Tap podcast. It's about game plans and getting choked out. So let's get started. First of all, there are people out there who will argue against the utility of game plans. People who do don't use them at all and will question whether or not they offer any benefit to the practitioner. And I always want to be respectful of that perspective, but the value of game plans is so evident to me that I have a hard time spending much energy debating the question. It, it just seems just painfully obvious and... If you want to perform well in competition, you should prepare properly. And part of your preparation is developing and practicing a game plan. You know, if you're entering a tournament for other reasons, maybe you're you're keeping your teammates company or you're testing something out or you're you're doing it for the yucks or whatever, maybe then a game plan doesn't make sense. But otherwise, Man, developing a game plan is just another piece of your preparation. It's evidence of a thoughtful approach to training for competition. Success in competition depends on any number of things. You know, a lot of those things you can't control, but plenty of those things you can. 
And obviously there's the, the quality of your grappling skills, there's, there's your strength, your speed, your endurance, your mental fortitude, your understanding of the rule set. All of those things factor into your likelihood for victory. But nothing is more important than your ability to make good decisions very quickly, under pressure. And if you can stay one step ahead of your opponent, victory is inevitable. And there's, there's that classic quote from Salo Herbero, right? And, and he's like, you know, he's, he's multiple time IBJJF, ADCC champion, older brother of Shanjay Herbero, training partner of, of Rafael Lovato Jr., you know, all of these world champs over and over again. You know, these are just legends in the game. Jiu-Jitsu royalty. Anyway, Saulo's quote is something along the lines of, if you think, you are late. If you're late, you'll use muscle. If you use muscle, you'll tire. And if you tire, you die. That's poetic. Now, death isn't generally part of the equation in the tournament setting. Like, that's, I'm not really worried about the actual end of anyone's life. But Silo's message is clear. If you're in a serious match and you need time to think, victory is already slipping away. And that's the value of a game plan. That's the value of the process that you go through to develop your game plan. Because what you're doing when you're putting your game plan together, when you're training your game plan, is you're thinking through the predictable scenarios in any match, and you're taking the time beforehand to figure out what actions you'll take in each of those scenarios. You have the luxury of putting weeks, months of thought and training and input from your coaches into your decisions so that when those scenarios arise in the heat of the match, you can perform with a fight IQ and, and a physical coordination that is beyond your skill level. A white belt with a good game plan is going to tap out more than their fair share of blue belts. That's just a reality. And the sooner that students embrace that, and do their due diligence in game planning, the more success they'll have in competition. So how do you go about structuring a game plan? There's a lot of different ideas out there. I'm going to present a structure that's worked well for me. I've tweaked it over the years, um, and I've pulled from, from a lot of excellent instructors that I've had who've had their own preference for how to organize their game plans. Starting with a relatively simple structure has value, and this is what I've used. So uh, take it for what it's worth. Um, the first step in uh, organizing a game plan is to identify the common scenarios that you expect to encounter in your matches. And there's different ways to identify those common scenarios. One way that works really well for a lot of people is to take what's essentially the four-step sequence that Danaher described on Rogan, uh, his podcast a couple years back. And the four phases that Danaher uses or at least the ones he describes in that interview, are 
Phase one, moving from the feet to the floor. Phase two, passing the legs, passing guard. Phase three is some sort of pin or control. And then phase four is the submission, uh, the break. And that's, that's a tried and true set of common scenarios to plan for. Um, oftentimes my game plan will also choose uh, scenarios that I have either had trouble with or uh, have been particularly personally common in my matches. Um, there was a time when I really focused on sweeps. And so I, I had a, a little segment of sweeps as a scenario. So I'd be working from uh, typically butterfly guard for those sweeps. I had, uh, or I still do at some points, include a scenario uh, that's specific to the, the initial the initial grip fighting. Um, if I'm working in the gi, uh, there are things I like to work on in the phase just before the takedown um, from the feet. Uh, so sometimes I will break those phases up. But either way, you identify scenarios where you want to put in thought and have uh, well-reasoned reactions on a hair trigger um, for your game plan. And then once you have those different scenarios... You figure out what your techniques are that you're going to be applying in those scenarios. You know, to cover your bases, your game plan must include a top and bottom game. And I'll talk about how I do that. My, my, my A game is definitely from the top. There's no doubt about that. Surprise, surprise. But your bottom game, I've, you know, if you look back at the matches I've had, uh, in, in every tournament I've been on the bottom, on my back, um, a handful of times, even when I've been performing very well. Like, you, this is jujitsu. Someone's going to put you on your back at some point. So you must include a top and a bottom game. That's the only way to be fully prepared. There's a value in representing your game plan on paper. A lot of people hesitate for a variety of reasons to put things down on paper. I think most of those reasons are petty. Most of them are hangups that we all might struggle with. Um, but there are real benefits to taking the time to write out your game plan. And for me, uh, I'll go through a bunch of pencil drafts. Uh, but what I'm creating is a flowchart. Things move from uh, the slap and bump in the upper left-hand corner to the tap in the bottom right-hand corner. All right, I'll, I'll usually draw this out in pencil drafts on a piece of 8.5 by 11 graph paper. Um, I'll turn it horizontally and... It is, it is literally a flow chart, slap and bump, upper left-hand corner, and a series of arrows that take me through those phases that I discussed, those four phases I identified, and end with the tap. Usually the tap is written in block letters and it's outlined in a box or something. You know, that's the goal, and all roads lead to the tap. 
if you want to get a sense of what the finished product looks like for this flowchart, uh, you can Google bullet journals and you'll see these handmade journal entries that are, uh, some of them are a little over the top, but some of them are exactly what I'm talking about. Between the slap and bump and the tap, I'll have roughly four columns of techniques. That first column is my takedowns. Right, I go into every competition looking for the takedown. There's there's zero guard pulling in my game plan. You know, my game plan will include a bottom game that I'll think through and I'll train, I'll get my reps in, and that's also laid out in my flowchart. But uh, for this discussion, I'll start with my A plan, and I'll I'll explain how I bring that B plan in. But the A plan is a top game. So column one are my takedowns. Usually three, four different things that I might be looking for. The second column are my guard passes. Usually I'm looking to pass from the feet. Third column are my pins. You know, this is side control, mount, back control, etc. And the fourth column is my list of submissions. Grouped up to match with whatever position I want to hit them from. Those are the categories in my A plan. The techniques in each column are listed with plenty of space. You know, you've got to have room on the page because there are arrows that start at the slap and bump and flow through each technique, you know, branching off to mark the options in the game plan. And everything eventually funnels down to the tap at the bottom right-hand corner. The B plan, the plan for my bottom game, begins about two-thirds down the page, you know, below the takedown column, and it starts with the guard positions that I intend to work from. Usually this will be butterfly. And the next group of techniques are the sweeps that I'm looking to hit from there. Beyond this point, the arrows lead back into the control positions where I'm looking to end up after a successful sweep. Right, I'm looking to sweep to side control, or maybe it's half guard, whatever it is. But the arrows pull back up into my control positions, which are part of my A plan. And from then on, I'm back into the top game. And depending on your game plan, the arrows might lead from guard positions directly into submissions. That's a shorter route. That's, that's a better plan. Uh, but my bottom game isn't great. So in competitive circumstances, I'm not usually thinking about submissions from the bottom. I'm looking to sweep and work from the top. And this document will go through several revisions leading up to the event. And as I'm choosing the techniques that fill out each phase, there are a bunch of considerations that I'm thinking through. I want to be selecting techniques that play to my strengths. I want to be choosing high percentage stuff, you know, bread and butter techniques that I've been proven time and time again. Um, that's not true for everybody, but that is true to my personality. You know, it just, I'll get drawn into esoteric YouTube techniques, but that stuff is, uh, it's stuff that I dabble with and I play around with during roles and it, it, takes a long time for that stuff to make it into my game plan, if it ever does. You know, I want to be selecting groups of techniques in each phase that play off my opponent's likely reactions. And as my quiver of techniques begins to take shape, I'm thinking about the circumstances that will lead me to pursue one technique over another. 
meaning I identify the cues that will guide my technique choice in each phase. I'll identify the early goals that are critical to a technique's success. I'll get to the point where I figured out what thoughts are going through my head and what message I want to be sending to my opponent in each phase. So we talked a little bit about the types of scenarios you might be choosing to focus in on during your matches. Let's talk a little bit about how you choose techniques and moves that you are going to hit in those particular scenarios. Um, so it's going to sound obvious. You want to be looking at which techniques have the greatest path, the, the strongest track record of success. Um, and those techniques are not exotic. You know, you want to have an excellent choke from the back. You want to have a couple of excellent joint locks on the order of like Kimuras or Americanas or straight arm bars. You don't, you don't need to be doing some fancy new, uh, crucifix chicken wing, you know, T lock thing. You want to take techniques that you have success with in the gym and you want to hone them to a razor's edge. It's not going to be your flashiest stuff or maybe it will be. You know, for people who are dynamic athletic guard passers, sometimes the guard passing that they do is super flashy. So as a rule, you're sticking to high percentage stuff and however you want to define high percentage is where the rub is. <laughs> and then you want to look at each particular scenario that you have. And there's probably anywhere from four to eight scenarios uh, that might make up a game plan. And you want to think to yourself, what am I looking to accomplish in each of these scenarios? And what resistance am I going to encounter? What defenses am I likely to encounter from my opponent in each of these scenarios? And for what's usually my first scenario, feet to floor, um, I recognize that there are certain things my opponent can present um, in terms of their stance, but the options, the likely options aren't that many. You know, my, my opponent's either going to be standing square, left foot forward, right foot forward, right? Basics of how I'm going to treat him change if he's left foot forward versus right foot forward. He's also going to have a certain height that he stands at. Some opponents stand tall, a little more vertical, a little more judo style. Some opponents stand very low, crouched, a little more horizontal, a little more wrestler, you know, working for a shot style. Those are the little categories of uh, variables my opponent has for me. That and distance. You know, my, my first takedown game plans focus a great deal on distance because you have those different stances your opponent can be at, left forward, right forward, tall versus crouched. And then you also have the different ranges that your opponent can either insist upon or that you, fi you find yourself at. I am much happier controlling range myself. That's part of what I 
look to establish in the first moments of a match is to is to use footwork and distance to dictate the range, which usually means forcing a long range encounter at first, being evasive, um, and only only allowing that range to close on my own terms. <laughs> so for me, those first few moments of a match, and I'll rehearse this in my mind, those first few moments of the match don't really begin with phase one, the takedown. The first few moments begin with shaking hands, you know, a little nod to the ref, good vibes all around, uh, a little bit of, you know, presenting the attitude that I want to be presenting there, a little bit of establishing uh, my space. And the first few moments of the match are about uh, breaking grips, cupping his hands, maintaining a distance. It's all shutting down. It's all defensive. I want this person to know that, that nothing's going to come easy. I like to use a technique called cupping hands where I'm just uh, letting my palms rest comfortably on the back of their knuckles and just, just pushing the hands away, pushing the hands away, pushing the hands away, just cupping and sweeping. Uh, and I, I'm doing that to, uh, to stake my claim. I want them to know that my defenses are sound. I want them to know that I'm not going to give an inch for any sort of shenanigans that we're going to, we're going to engage this match on my terms. And as we're moving in those first few moments, I'm shutting down, shutting down, shutting down. And then the techniques that are part of my game plan are identified on paper and in my mind and in my musculature they are they are cued by the range that I'm fighting at. So if I'm fighting far out, I'm thinking about wrist control, maybe moving from the wrist control to an arm drag or to an ankle pick. Those are the only two things I'm really thinking about. You know, eventually, if I'm far away from you, uh, I'm curious if you'll give me your wrist. You know, I, I'm curious if you'll give me your wrist. I'm curious if you'll be able to get close enough and I'll be able to take an ankle. Those are the only two things I'm thinking about. When we get to the mid-range, um, you know, that means we're in sort of collar tie position, you know, and you can get collar ties, maybe a hand on the inside of the bicep or tricep. My other hand is a little bit free to, to find a place I'd prefer the inside, but, um, I definitely, I'm, I'm fighting for the collar tie and the other hand I'm less concerned about. And I'm thinking from that position, I'm thinking snap downs, moving the head and snatching the single leg, maybe to a double. That's really, that's what I'm thinking. It's, it's moving, snapping down, snapping down, waiting for him to pop up, shooting for the legs. That's, that's my mid range game. And then from in tighter, uh, which would be, you know, maybe a deep underhook, maybe a body lock. Uh, then I start thinking about trips. You know, if depending if he if he lets me get my hips around, if we're in the gi, uh, maybe there's a hip toss there. But usually I'm thinking about uh, outside trips, inside trips from the body lock. So I have three ranges there. Uh, in my head, there's also 
triggers what I would prefer if they're left foot forward, right foot forward, standing taller or standing lower. And that's one way to check off the criteria for your game plan for the for the feet to floor phase. Do you have the stances covered you're likely to encounter from your opponent? And do you have the ranges covered that you're likely to encounter from your opponent and from yourself? And if you can come up with three or four techniques, there are three or four three or four may not be uh, really realistic. Let's, let's say that you have three or four little clusters of techniques, right? Because really, for most of, for takedowns in particular, it's almost imperative to have uh, a, an immediate counter, an immediate chain built right in, right? You have to choose techniques in combination for them to make sense. You know, the expected defensive reaction from your opponent should lead right into uh, a second technique that's part of your game plan. You should you should be prepared for the classic defensive reactions to whatever your primary game plan is, to whatever your primary technique is. As you're thinking about choosing techniques for each phase, there's a bunch of questions you should be asking yourself and criteria you should be using to judge which techniques are the particular ones that you're going to go with, others you know you might avoid. And this is a process that forces you to really understand what's taking place in a jiu-jitsu match. You know, in each of your phases, there are particular problems that you're trying to solve. You know, for passing, you're trying to get around the legs, trying to get to a position where you can exert some control, you know, on the hips or wherever you think the best position is to exert control. Uh, and so you start thinking about, all right, what am I trying to achieve in this phase of the match? What does progress, what does improvement look like? Uh, what does getting shut down look like? What are my opponent's intentions? What are, where, where are their defenses going to lead them? Where are their attacks going to lead them? You're trying to determine the essential elements of of victory in each particular phase. And each phase has its own nuances, right? So something like passing, uh, there is some similarity to takedowns in, in that you oftentimes have some say, have some agency over the starting position. You know, you can choose to pass from the feet or from the knees, from headquarters. You know, that's, that's a particular choice that usually you can make for yourself, depending on how controlling uh, the bottom player is. And with passing, you want to be able to work in combinations. You want to be able to pass to both sides. And with the passing phase, uh, I've also had trouble not being prepared for particular guards. Uh, And this happened to me in Gi Gi competition at one point where I realized that my passing game plan, uh, it was beneficial to have a handful, a little system of, of pass combinations that I would work through. But I also needed to do my due diligence in researching some of the more esoteric guards and some of the specific grips that people would establish. You know, it's like I needed to know 
how to approach uh, freeing myself or, or fighting against spider guard you need to know a little bit about lasso you need to know how you're going to work in de la Hiva. you know there needs to be not only do you need your own uh sort of a game plan for for smashing through or evading or whatever your passing style is but you also need to have a handful of nuggets that will allow you to compete effectively against very particular guards and that that may be more of a gi situation than no gi um but in terms of that phase of the game plan uh to my mind it, it might be good well no it is it is good to have both what's on your game plan your your go-to techniques in that position or in those positions but also in the back of your mind the cards that you're going to pull should you be faced with a particularly effective uh, but maybe esoteric guard style that may also be an issue for lighter weights more so than than the heavyweights you don't get a lot of real sophisticated guard play from the big boys at least in my level so um but other phases have other challenges right the controlling phase if you're doing the four phase thing if you get down to the pin that's essential for earning points uh in most tournaments like you need to be able to solidify positions if you're going to rack points up if if you're in that sort of rule set um, and, and when it comes to controlling, you're looking at, uh, tailoring those controlling positions to lead directly into whatever your preferred submissions are. You know, you, the way you establish side control after a pass may vary, uh, depending on which submission you're looking to, to work from that position. Um, same thing with every other controlling position. You know, you want to know how you, what, what the essential points are to maintain that position, to solidify that position, get your points. And then you want to also be recognizing how you transition from that mount or from that side control or from the back into your submissions. Right. And when I've already said it, but when it comes to the submissions, I, I am a huge fan of sticking with your bread and butter techniques. It's what works through all the ranks up to the highest level. You'll get better and better. You, you'll find details and nuances in your rear naked choke five years from now that seem obvious to you. But that only happens if you stick with it. And I do favor the attacks that allow you to maintain position. That might be kind of a, a traditional or old school perspective. Um, but I don't have the sort of mentality, at least at this point in my life, that allows me to be entirely comfortable fully committing to each and every submission attempt to the point where uh, I end up giving up position. I like to maintain control. I like to anticipate that I will need multiple submission attempts from an advantageous position in order to finally get the tap. 
the odds are, you know, the first time I try to take someone's arm, uh, it's not going to work. So I, I like to, uh, you know, work in combination like many other techniques. And first it'll be going for an arm and then that will lead into going for a neck and that will come back to going for the arm. I like to do that from a position of dominance. If I can work from mount, um, I'll stay in mount. I won't risk losing that position um, in order to take home, you know, the straight arm bar or something like that. Uh, I even hesitate to step off to the side if I'm working like a head and arm choke, like an arm triangle. I think about I get that as tight and as firmly in position as possible before I begin to rotate and slide off to side control. I really like that mount position. And so the submissions that I choose tend to favor uh, ones that will allow me to maintain a dominant position. So maybe all that's really obvious. Um, and all that is particular to me. I, I recognize I have a huge amount of respect and admiration for people that uh, dive on on submissions, on ankles or on whatever with with uh, with no concern or with you know seeming abandon um, for their own their own positional dominance. So you're taking the time to write out these groups of techniques within each phase, and this is this is a process. You know, this is your first draft. Half of the techniques on this first draft won't be in the final game plan. It's likely that my my really go-to techniques, I get them at the top of the list almost immediately, but how, how, uh, how I fill out the options in each phase, that'll go through half a dozen edits and revisions before I end up with what, what ultimately is my final game plan. Um, but this is the starting point and I give myself that structure and then my thoughts become much more organized uh, and I can, I can really consider each particular choice um, in a very, you know, in a very kind of small focused way. Uh, I can do that more easily because I know I've, I've taken the time to sketch out everything else on paper. I don't have to remember what my third you know, my third string, my D plan submission is on any given training session. I don't have to be thinking about, you know, the entirety of my game plan. In fact, I tend to focus in on one or two points, one or two pivotal moments in the game plan, things that I want to sharpen each session. Putting it on paper means you don't have to keep it all in your head. How do you go about training your game plan? That's a wonderful question. And that's really where some of the magic is. You can put a ton of thought into what you put down on paper, but it's only as valuable as what you are able to physically perform uh, when it counts. So training the game plan, uh, practicing the game plan is just like anything else. You know, there's no shortcuts to it. It's just like, you know, your physical conditioning or if you're trying to lose weight, you know, weight management or your, or your mental game, you have to put in the time. This is not like, oh, I wrote it down on Tuesday. On Saturday, I'm going to be able to go out and uh, implement my game plan. That's just not the way it works. 
Typically for me, I'll like to identify the competition date and start about 10 weeks out. You know, the game plan, the first draft goes down on paper a good 10 weeks. I start to feel even a little itchy about it if it's if it's less than that. If it's eight weeks, if I have, if I have two months before the tournament, that's fine. But I will very quickly develop that first draft and start making revisions uh, as quickly as I can. Really, I prefer 10 weeks. 10 weeks seems good. 12 weeks seems like maybe a little bit overkill. Um, but find what works for you. And then I will have the game plan finalized about three weeks out. There's really my goal is to have no revisions. Everything can get refined. My technique and my skills can improve. But my game plan is usually finalized about three weeks out. So that gives me between 10 and 3, so that gives me the seven weeks of refinement, of doing research with partners and talking to my coaches and other people in the class and making decisions, you know, Googling stuff on YouTube and watching a lot of matches with high-level people who are doing the techniques that I'm considering. All of that happens for, for a good seven weeks, if I'm comfortable. And during those seven weeks, or during the, the full 10 weeks leading up to the competition, one of the most valuable activities that I do specific to the game plan is repetitions of specific segments, specific sequences. There's all these paths. Another way I think about it is paths through a forest, right? All of these, I have a starting point, I have an end point, and there's many meandering ways I can get from A to B. I want to make sure in my game plan, as I'm drilling, what I'm thinking about is walking each of those paths. I am making sure that every path through that forest is well-worn. I want to know what to anticipate around the corner. I want to know where the sticky spots are. I want to know where the stumbling blocks are. I want to, in particular, look at decision points. Like I want to physically switch from one guard pass to another guard pass to another guard pass. I want to work with partners who will feed me certain reactions. Uh, that's important to note also. I, I talk about uh, drilling techniques in your game plan. And when I say drilling, I think that you know the established expectation is that you're drilling against an unresisting partner. It's very important, very beneficial to have skilled training partners who can modulate their resistance. You know, oftentimes I'll start with very little resistance and then we'll build up to like kind of if you're rolling with a zombie, you know, a jujitsu guy who is just kind of feeding you stuff and giving you realistic movements and reactions all the way to a person who's 100% resisting and is skilled. As a purple belt, I spend a lot of time drilling and practicing and getting repetitions with other blue and purples and browns because I can explain to those guys what I'm looking for and they're good enough to provide it. I'm also a huge fan of solo training in visualization and pantomiming. Um, you will get looked at funny. I spent a lot of years taking, you know, a half hour here, during my lunch break to go walk off into, you know, a little wooded corner of, of the company lot and 
do a little solo movement drills for uh, for jujitsu, and you definitely will get uh, some funny looks, and you will get a reputation in the office as being a little bit of a nut. But that's you know that was probably going to happen anyway. When I say visualization, the benefits that I'm thinking about are really around reinforcing neurological paths. There have been research projects out there that give strong indication that mental repetitions can get you many of the same neurological, engram, physiological benefits as physical repetitions. In particular for me, I think the largest gains, or the best benefits are to be had when it comes to recognizing and reacting to cues. I think the combination of your imagination coupled with small movements just indicating how you would move left or how you would move right, you know, little small muscular tension uh, can be excellent at reinforcing what you're trying to learn on the mat. Um, there's really something to be said for frequency of work. And for me, if I'm going to be doing something jujitsu related every day, most of those days I'm going to be doing it off the mat. So if you're, you know, you get a little light bounce in your step, you get a little bit of footwork in and, uh, you know, I let my eyes soften, right? So I'm not, sometimes my eyes are fully closed, but oftentimes um, my eyes are open, but the focus is inward. I, I am literally imagining sometimes from a third person perspective, looking down on myself and my opponent, sometimes from within my own uh, body. <laughs> this sounds funny to talk about, but sometimes from the perspective of myself as a fighter, sometimes I'm imagining my reflection. Sometimes I'm, I'm looking directly back at myself. And a lot of what I'm working on is coupling an immediate cue, which I'm imagining, you know, imagining, okay, this person is standing left foot forward, a little high. I know what I'm going to hit from there. And that immediate cue, right, to the, to the action, to, to my reaction to that cue. I'm trying to make that as quick and seamless as possible. You know, I'll feed myself cues, in rapid succession, as if I'm responding to an opponent throwing feints. In regards to solo training, I think there's also huge value in putting yourself in that competitive mind space on a regular basis. And when I step on the mat for competition, I don't have the same attitude or mentality uh, that I do when I'm rolling in the gym. I'm rolling for training purposes. Uh, when I'm rolling for training purposes, I, it's, I'm, I'm rolling to get better. I'm rolling to explore. I'm rolling to have a positive, good time with friends. You know, so when I'm rolling in the, in the training room, uh, I have a very tolerant approach. You know, I think everyone should get to do a little bit of what they want to do and, you know, I'm looking to have a dialogue with, with my training partner and I'm not fighting tooth and nail to make whatever I want happen, happen. I'm interested in fun, enjoyable training sessions and 
everyone gets to do their stuff and I get a good workout. I mean, that person gets a good workout. But when I'm rolling in competition and when I'm preparing to roll in competition, I adopt a very different mental attitude towards the, the rolling. And I can't, this, this is something that I need to consciously switch several weeks out. I can't roll fun and games, you know, loosey-goosey in the gym for weeks and then expect to just step onto the mat and adopt a different style. So at some point, uh, you know, in that 10 weeks, I stop rolling for fun and games and I start rolling with the intention of preparing myself for competition, which means I get, I get much less tolerant of anything that my opponent may have in mind. Um, if we're rolling, like if we're drilling, then we're, we're working to, to improve each other. I'll give them everything or give them everything. But if we're training competition rounds or if we're just rolling, I can't, even, even if we're not rolling particularly hard, um, in the lead up to a tournament, all of my rounds take on a different tone. I'm looking to use some power, some athleticism. I'm looking to shut down everything coming my way. And the mentality that I need to do that, the mentality that I adopt to do that must be practiced. It's, it's, it's not necessarily a place mentally that I want to spend a lot of time outside of competition. So it takes practice to get there leading up to the competition. And I need to put reps in just like anything else. Taking 15 minutes out of my day during a lunch hour to go and get myself psyched up. Not necessarily to full intensity, but take myself to a place mentally that I want to be when it's time to perform. Getting doing that every lunch hour for a few weeks on end really greases the groove for me being able to adopt that competitive mindset when the time counts. It's important to me physiologically to have the right level of intensity, to have the right emotional state, to have the right self-talk. There are things that you can do to benefit yourself mentally that are relatively straightforward, but they require practice. And that's part of what I'm doing when I'm doing solo training. I'm practicing putting myself in the mindset that I want to be in when I compete. And I'm practicing recognizing cues and firing my neurons in the appropriate reactive manner. One specific exercise that I really enjoy, especially when we get to the final three weeks or so before a competition where, where the game plan is sort of set in stone at that point, I really enjoy uh, either in my first, second, or third round. At that point, you know, usually after class we're rolling for 
uh, an hour, hour and a half or so, in one of my early rounds, I'll take someone aside. Basically, we'll start from standing and we'll trade off takedowns or if they're guard pullers, they can pull all the way through to this submission, just trading off one after the other, beginning each match as if it was a little mini match and competition, you know, slap and bump from the feet. And then whoever's turn it is, if it's, say, my partner's turn, he's a guard puller, he'll engage, he'll get the grips. I'll give him maybe the smallest bit of resistance, a little bit of movement to force him to really solidify his grips. And he'll pull, he'll take me down one of the paths in his game plan all the way through to the submission. All right? Um, and I'll and look at the tap, you know, takes him maybe 40 seconds, you know, between 30 seconds and a minute to go from start to finish. We slap and bump immediately up to the feet, slap and bump, start, start of the match, and it's my turn. I engage, fight the hands, double leg, pass, side control, mount, get the tap, and we just trade off back and forth. And you can do that at a pretty high intensity and get a phenomenal conditioning workout out of it. Um, but really, one of the values is that it, it helps you hardwire those fluid movements without stop, without rest, with realistic timing. You know, your partner's moving with you on the feet, giving you a little bit of resistance, I really enjoy those rounds, and I find that practice very beneficial, uh, especially leading into those final weeks of, of training before competition. One other thing that I like to be uh, very intentional about when I'm training a game plan is I like to maintain a commitment to certain submissions. So when I uh, have established the handful usually there's anywhere from three to maybe five submissions that i'll be anticipating hitting in in competition that'll be part of my game plan once i have those let's say three to four even in training the weeks leading up to the competition I really commit to focusing all my energy on finishing with those submissions. I want to get my reps in. I want white belts and blue belts and purple belts. I want people that are smaller than me. I want to be able to get repeated reps in finishing with, you know, if, if, if I want to be finishing with guillotines, I want to be doing dozens, hundreds, thousands of guillotines on a variety of people in a variety of situations for weeks at a time leading up to competition, which means I don't want to get distracted with, oh, I like guillotines, but also, you know, I like my anaconda and I like my darts and I like a lot of that front headlock stuff. It's like, no, 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 no. If the intention, the intention might be to play with all of those submissions in the game plan, that that's a great, that could very well be a great part of your game plan. But if I've decided or you've decided the game plan centers on high elbow guillotines, and isn't about playing back and forth, then my recommendation is for weeks on end, as soon as you know that, for the following six weeks, seven weeks, eight weeks, you commit to doing high elbow guillotines on every person you can possibly find, um, especially people whose defenses aren't great initially, and then you start working to the people whose defenses are good, developing the nuance and the feel 
for a variety of body types, super important. And also developing the confidence to hit it on any kind of neck, on any kind of opponent. Another thing about those last three weeks is you want to be hitting a certain amount of intensity. You want to have struggle, hard rolls. You want to push your cardio and your endurance and your pace for whatever timeline, whatever, not timeline, whatever time constraints the matches are scheduled for. So if they're scheduled for eight-minute matches, man, you got to hit hard eight-minute matches. And in the back of my mind, it's important to know that you're going to taper. It's important to know it's important to know in those in those final three weeks, that final chapter of training before competition, knowing that you are going to go very, very, very hard. You must give yourself exposure and time at a level of intensity that either matches or surpasses what you expect to have in the tournament. It's important to bear in mind that you will taper your training in the final week. Uh, You will give your body ample time to recover. For me, if the competition is on a Saturday, my last hard training is typically the Tuesday, perhaps the Wednesday before that. You know, maybe as late as Wednesday evening, right? And that gives me Thursday and Friday and a little bit of Saturday for just recovery. Let me take that back. I'd really rather have my last hard rolls on Tuesday. You know, that gives me Wednesday and Thursday to recover. And then Friday, I'm already kind of itching for competition. I'm in my body's a little bit heightened, a little bit uh, pent up. And there's a nice level of eagerness that physiologically I feel. And I think that is uh, a huge uh, benefit when you're going into performance is, is for your body to be primed for that performance. And in those final three days, let's say my last hard day is a Tuesday, in those final Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I break a sweat every day. You know, I'm doing something physical. I might even go to class and get very light rolls or a little bit of light drilling in that last half of the week. But more likely, uh, I'm doing little stretches, little calisthenics at home, some drilling at home. You know, it's popular to talk about it as active recovery. Uh, That's a a great way to think about it. You might also think about it as uh, keeping your body from becoming stagnant and stiff. You know, even as as you recover in those last couple of days from your serious exhaustion, you know, you want to keep your body live and supple. You want to move and flow and you want to blow out the pipes a little bit um, and get your heart rate up. In addition to getting a certain amount of intensity out of your roles, you know, and in, in addition to going with people who are your equal or better And pushing yourself to your own limits, it's also important to give yourselves uh, supreme belief in the effectiveness of your techniques. And one way to solidify that belief in the effectiveness of your techniques is to roll with people who really are a little bit below your skill level. You know, it's, it's wonderful to roll with blue belts who can give you hard physical exchanges 
but whose skill level is a little bit lacking and who will eventually succumb to, you know, whatever game plan you've honed over the previous couple of months. Um, that's huge for solidifying your confidence, solidifying that positive mentality, that belief in your own skills. You want to base that belief on real tangible experiences. So you want to choke out a bunch of white belts, a bunch of blue belts, and know that your skills are effective. There are several schools of thought when it comes to how you structure your performance day or, you know, things that you're going through mentally uh, in order to optimize your performance the day of the competition. And, you know, maybe I'll do a more complete uh, episode on on different philosophies or different approaches to performance um, but just briefly, uh, the day of the competition, I'm in favor of developing a routine that uh, that treats the competition day, the tournament day, in a very similar way to your training sessions. I don't think, for me at least, it's beneficial to... Um, treat the tournament day as anything overly exceptional. Um, I think I perform better when I keep things as even keeled as possible. Um, a few things that I definitely do do habitually uh, with tournaments is I show up with uh, plenty of time. I like to have time to walk around the venue, to explore little nooks and crannies, to find out, you know, where the restrooms are, where I'll be changing, where uh, there might be space for me to warm up and drill a little bit. I like to get a feel for the venue hours in advance of the competition. I definitely do not like being rushed in those moments. One thing that seems to be universally agreed upon is that there is value in raising your heart rate uh, to whatever level you expect to compete at. So for me, that's in like the 170s, low 180s. There's a value to warming up the body, to getting your blood moving, getting your joints loose, breaking a sweat, uh, breaking a hard sweat, blowing out the pipes before you actually need to perform, before your match. Almost every coach I've ever had, every coach I've studied, has their athletes warm up hard, break a sweat. It's important to have your snacks ready. It's important to know what you're going to eat. Those are things you don't want to leave to chance. It can be, it can be super shitty to show up and realize, like, oh, I'm going to have to eat you know, whatever greasy French fries in the middle of the day and then go out and try to perform with a belly full of greasy French fries. I'm a big fan of dates, dried fruit. I'm a big fan of having a little bit of sugar in your bloodstream. I'm a big fan of being a little caffeinated and definitely very well hydrated when I compete, I'll go to the bathroom, I'll pee three or four times, 
you know, in the hour or two before a match, uh, partially from nerves and partially because I'm a big believer in drinking plenty of water after weigh-ins. In the day of competition, that's when all of the solo reps of putting yourself in the best place mentally over and over again really pay off. There's no need to jump into that intense mental focus too early in the day. You know, I, I keep myself light and joyful all the way through my warm up while I'm wandering around. But eventually, I stop socializing with people and I put myself in a place mentally where I'm ready to step on the mat and compete. So I'm a little uncertain about telling this story, but I'm also kind of excited to tell it on the podcast. So uh, here we go. I guess I should set the stage. So this is back in maybe 2014, 2015, and I was an experienced white belt. So at this stage, I had probably done maybe three or four tournaments, nothing major, but I competed well. I'd had some wins, had some losses. As a white belt, as a pretty athletic white belt, I probably felt like I was kind of a badass, very cringeworthy at this stage uh, in life. But we all have cringeworthy moments. If you can't look back and think, wow, I've grown a lot since, uh, since I was that guy six years ago. Well, that's, that's not the worst thing in the world. Anyway, so this was a Naga tournament, North American Grappling Association in Rhode Island. And I rolled up in there solo. I hadn't really been training consistently because I was probably new to the New England area. But I had found a gym in Concord and I was rolling hard and I was doing well as a white belt on the mats with other white and blue belts. And I remember at the tournament, this was the first time that I kind of ran up against jujitsu royalty or like I, had, I was in the presence of jujitsu royalty because Gabriel Gonzaga was there. He had a gym and he was coaching a bunch of guys uh, who were in the grappling tournament. So I got to see Gabriel Gonzaga. Uh, I didn't like shake his hand or like actually say anything to the guy, but uh, I rolled against one of his students uh, and I, I won the match. I actually didn't really recognize like that is the time when you go over and you you shake hands or give a little nod to the other guy's coach. Like I should have done it at the time, um, but I didn't. I was kind of new to competition, like I said, and I didn't. I wasn't savvy enough to be like, "Hey, now's my moment to go like Uncle Bump with uh, Gabriel Gonzaga in the in the mid two thousand teens." Anyway, so I'm at this tournament. Uh, I rolled in there on my own, like no other classmates, students with me. Uh, my family wasn't there. And uh, I'm loosening up. I'm doing well. I think I probably signed up for both gi and no gi. And the other guy, the guy who eventually chokes me out, uh, is, a, is, a, is I can't say he's really a friend of mine. I don't really know him that well. But uh, he's a guy named Andrew Kimball. And every interaction I've ever had with Andrew has been positive. So shout out to Andrew Kimball. I saw him rolling earlier in the day. Like like I said in, in the other segment, like I like to show up to these tournaments early. So I got plenty of time. I'm checking out who the other guys who probably in my uh, bracket are. And he definitely caught my eye because he he's an athletic, strong guy. At this stage, we're in the same weight bracket. T 
today, you know, eight years later, it's 2021 right now. Today we're in different weight brackets because Andrew trimmed down. Andrew's transition from uh, white belt to blue belt was also like uh, he lost a bunch of weight. And so, was, you know, Andrew's looking svelte these days. We're not in the same weight bracket. We are in the same age bracket because, whew, Masters League. And uh, anyway, it was me and Andrew and we got paired up. It was probably both of our like third or fourth match of the day. And the ref was this little, you know, stocky guy with tatted up sleeves, you know, an experienced ref who uh, I'd seen later on at other tournaments. When we come out, everyone's all love. We bump knuckles, shake hands. Everyone's everyone's happy, happy. And the match starts, you know, ref calls like kombach. And uh, Andrew came out super low. I remember he came out in the squad. It's one of those times when like, you're like, oh, this is a guy pulling a little gimmicky thing, which everyone tests out at different times. And he had the flexibility to be comfortable in a low squat. Little does Andrew know, I also have pretty good flexibility. Um, but Andrew pulled guard, which for a heavier white belt is unique. He was clearly like, all right, he had a game plan. He had a move or he, he didn't have a move, but he had a more sophisticated uh, arsenal than you would imagine most uh, most white belts have had to have, especially at the, at the higher weights. And so he pulled guard on me and my passing game was pretty strong. I knee sliced right through that. And I think it surprised him. You know, he pulled to his back. I was around him to the left. My knee was through. We were in side control, like, uh, without, without as much effort as I think he expected. And that was a huge boost for my confidence. I was like, okay, I'm in side control. I, in my head, I've already got a couple points. Like, I think I passed guard. I don't think I got a takedown because I think he was actually actively pulling. But in my head, I'm like, all right, this is a positive uh, direction for this match to be going in the first 40 seconds. You know, we've probably been, probably been on the mat, you know, less than a minute at that point. And... But Andrew was a skilled and sneaky dude. He's wily. And he set the grips for a baseball choke, right? For the baseball bat choke. And I was overenthusiastic, unexperienced. In my head, I wasn't paying as much attention to his, uh, his hand gripping the lapel at the back of the neck as I should have. I didn't respect the grip that he had taken. And I'm sure I was uh, overly focused on the positional improvement. So I was passing to mount. You know, that's that's where you go from that that fast side control. If you get those points, you then get to mount. You get those points for mount. Then you begin working us up. It's a you know, it's a very tried and true path. But. Uh, but Andrew had set both of his grips at the back of my collar. And as I slid my knee over his belly to take mount, he turned with me and set that baseball choke. And I was on top of him, uh, firmly in mount, as I started to drift unconscious. And the baseball choke, for folks who don't know, it's a choke where 
both hands, both of your hands slide to the back of your opponent's collar and they come together one palm up, one palm down as if you were holding a baseball bat. You know, the way if you're right handed, your right palm is facing up, your left palm is facing down. And then as you apply the choke, your forearms and your wrists actually scissor past each other to to constrict either side of the neck. So uh, from the bottom, Andrew slid his hands around, gripping the back of my lapel and set those grips um, with with almost no tension. You know, does that didn't ring any bells immediately for me um, because I was naive and inexperienced. Uh, but it's an excellent choke and you can hit it from the bottom in uh, situations that are otherwise pretty dire. And people ask me what it felt like. Like you can see, you can see on the video, uh, I go limp for, you know, a moment or two. You can see there's definitely a relaxing in my hand when you, when you watch the match. Like my arm goes from pretty active and, and some tension to relaxed. <laughs> I am clearly like I have lost, uh, my physical, my, my uh, connection to this body in a very profound way um, when, when I go unconscious. And what it felt like in the moment was interesting. It wasn't an unpleasant feeling. Visually, uh, either you can imagine dark clouds, you can also imagine there's almost a crackling to it. Almost as if the edges of your peripheral are being singed away, not in an unpleasant way. Um, there's a bit of a flush. You know, I don't know if anyone's ever uh, stood up too quickly and felt a little bit of a, there's a tingle that flushes down the body. There's a bit of a physical sensation of that. And uh, that lasts for a few moments. Time, time does seem to stretch out there. It doesn't seem like a, like there's a, uh, there's any rush in how it felt for me at least. And then I was out. Then I dropped into, uh, a dream that now I'm not, when at the time I vividly remembered the dream. Now I'm not so sure if I remember what the dream was or I remember a story I told myself of what the dream was, but that's less important. So you drop out of consciousness. You're in whatever dream you have and people have described different sorts of dreams. And then the next sensation I was aware of was the, the movement of my legs back and forth as the ref stood above me. I don't remember what the man was saying, but I remember like feeling, okay, there's someone like rocking my legs back and forth, which is not an unpleasant way to wake up. Face, you know, staring up at the roof of the church, preacher telling the truth and it hurts. And, uh, but I was, I couldn't hear a thing he was saying. And, uh, and then, you know, he kind of put my legs down and I, I, uh, I think I was able to feign more alertness than I really possessed because I, you can see, I get up, I roll to my side, I stand up off the mat and I'm walking towards the edge of the mat and I'm definitely not all the way okay. There's a little stumble there. I'm not walking like a fluid guy who's like athletic and, and loosened up and in his prime. I'm walking like someone who's like, eh, maybe their balance is still a little bit off. Um, but I walk off the mat and you can see some of the crowd around the edges and on the neighboring mats. And 
while the ref is rocking my legs back and forth, there's definitely like a concerned murmur that that kind of moves through uh, the people that you can see in the background. And uh, it may not actually have happened this way, but in my head, as I come back around to to consciousness, uh, there's a little like ripple of applause. There probably really isn't literally applause, but there's definitely like a, a flush of relief and positivity that comes from from the other people in the audience to know that nothing, you know, to know that crisis has been averted. Uh, Andrew was was a gentleman. He put me out. I'm on top of him. And it took the ref a moment or two to really uh lay hands on both of us and stop the match but Andrew maybe had a had an inkling had a notion that I was out but he just held the choke in a very stable way and then kind of rolled me to my side and stood up and like kind of walked off I, I don't really know exactly I can't remember exactly what he did as I was unconscious on the mat he might be just off screen at the time the whole episode is really it's fast it takes anywhere from you know, probably four to 15 seconds max to go from conscious struggle, unconscious recovering. It's an amazing set of experiences to have in the blink of an eye. You know, think how many 30 second moments do you have in your life and how many are, are just water under the bridge. There are very few that stay with you for the rest of your life. But those moments will stay with me for the rest of my life. The memories of that experience have contributed to the way I live my life. You know, they've been nuggets of fuel and motivation when it comes to like my jujitsu training. You know, that experience, the power of knowing you can get put out and you can put someone else out. Uh, there's legitimacy to this art experiencing that skill from either side of the coin is very uh, motivational for someone who's interested in, in these sorts of pursuits. There's also the nuts and bolts of understanding the technique that was used. Like I definitely spent a lot of time defending against baseball chokes for months and years and even now. Uh, I see that baseball choke coming from a mile away. <laughs> I've spent, and a lot of that is due also to McCormick. This guy I trained with McCormick who had a wicked baseball choke. And, uh, and McCormick put me through the ringer and I don't let him get anywhere near that choke now. Uh, shout out to McCormick from across the seas. And I have this connection to the guy who choked me out, right? Andrew. Uh, Andrew and I, I think probably later in the day, crossed paths and, you know, said hey to each other and did the did the appropriate like, you know, good match, man, good work. And uh, it was all love. And later, Andrew reached out to me because he knew I had filmed it. And I think he must have reached out to me either on Facebook or something else. And he asked for the film or he asked for the tape, whatever. And I was like, I made a joke out of it. I was like... You know, are you kidding me? You want you want to make me part of your highlight reel? And I gave him a little bit of shit about uh, using me for his for his taped highlight reel on YouTube or whatever. 
but he took it really well. We laughed about it. And I, I of course, found the film and sent him the film. Um, Andrew does have a presence on social media and his, his content is great. Every, every once in a while, I'll look up whatever he's doing on Instagram or something. And he's always got clips of competition footage and just general badassery that I think is, uh, is pretty sweet. So shout out to Andrew Kimball. Um, and those moments, those memories are also, they've served as a measuring stick at different times in my life. It's a glimpse of who I was and what I was doing and what things were important to me and how I was occupying my time. I can take myself right back to the person I was in that tournament and on those mats through the memory of the experience of this match. And I can remember the sort of person I was, how, how I was as a father in those months and years, and how I, can, I remember my children and my wife during whatever episode of life we're in right at that moment. It's a wonderful thing. It's a touchstone. That match serves as a touchstone in my life for what I was like, what my life was like in the mid 2000 teens <laughs> all right folks it is time to wrap this thing up are we done already my thanks and appreciation to all of you out there listening i hope some of what i've said and what i've thought and what i've tried to say uh, has been interesting it's been a pleasure thank you for joining me for the journey um looking to the immediate future uh for this podcast i'm trying to line up a couple of interviews with uh two different people who i am really interested and excited to speak with um so the podcast might be of a different format in the next episode or two I might actually do one more episode just solo as we get the material ready for the interviews. So I hope you guys uh, will join me for that. If you made it through like an hour long of this podcast, then maybe you'll, you'll give me a chance with the next episode too. That's my hope. All right. If you have any thoughts about this podcast, you want to reach out to me at all, you can always contact me at the BJJTap at gmail.com. That's it for me for right now. Take care.